Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. Well, we come before the Word of God this morning, as it is a privilege for us to do each week, and I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10 once again. Working our way through the Gospel here of Mark, and last week, if you were with us, you know we looked at the passage where Jesus' disciples tried to hinder the children from coming into His presence. But Jesus had rebuked his disciples, and welcomed the children, saying that to such as them belongs the kingdom of God, and and warning further that anyone who would enter the kingdom of heaven must do so like these children. Now, as if to emphasize this point in bold relief, Jesus' next interaction is a person just the opposite of a child. Far from the helplessness of uh, of a child, here comes a man who has everything to commend himself. He is wealthy, He has kept the commandments. He desires eternal life. And yet, unlike the children who received a blessing from Jesus, this man goes away from Jesus, leaving him sorrowful. This is the episode, of course, of the rich young ruler, which is related in Matthew and Mark and Luke. And it further addresses the question that we began to ask last week, the question of how can we enter the kingdom of God? So let's read this account together. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. This is God's word. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. But you know the commandments do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud honor your father and mother? And he said to him, well, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible. But not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Father, I pray that you would use your word by the power of your spirit to draw us to yourself this morning 
and to lift high the name of Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. On September 14th, 2020, billionaire Chuck Feeney, who's a co-founder of the airport retailer Duty Free, completed his life goal at age 89. Feeney's life goal, to give away his entire fortune while still living. Unlike most who often hold on to their money during their life, maybe giving some away, but then leave it to a foundation after their death, Feeney lived his retirement in an austere studio apartment with just enough savings to last his life and then gave away the entirety of his $8 billion fortune. Now, when asked why he did this, Feeney said, well, it's a lot more fun to give when you're alive than it is to give when you're dead. (laughs) And besides, he said, why not keep control over the money goes and feel the satisfaction of the good you're doing? Feeney concluded with a, a bit of advice for us. His parting words were, try it, you'll like it. No, I'm not criticizing Feeney at all. Jesus tells us it is indeed more blessed to give than to receive. And I think Feeney realized the truth of this statement. But Feeney's example does force us to come back to Jesus' teaching in our passage and re-ask the question the rich man asked. How can we enter into the kingdom of God? See, on paper it appears that Feeney did exactly what Jesus called the rich young ruler to do, to give away all his money to the poor. So did that enable him to inherit eternal life? I don't know Feeney's heart, but Jesus' words make it clear that the action itself would not lead him to the kingdom of heaven. Because the main point of this passage this morning is that the way into the kingdom of God is not through what you have or what you have done, but through who you follow. The way into the kingdom of God is not through what you have or what you have done, but through who you follow. And Jesus fleshes this point out in this conversation both with the rich man and with his disciples afterwards, and we want to look at both. So let's start by looking at Jesus' conversation with the rich man in verses 17 to 22. As verse 17 opens, Jesus is on the move again. You remember he's been on the eastern side of the Jordan River, working his way from north to south toward Jerusalem. And he is continuing his journey here when just as he leaves, a man runs up, kneels before him and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit the eternal life? And I don't want us to miss how much this man has going for him here. To begin, he asks the right question. In fact, he is the first person in all the Gospels to ask Jesus the million-dollar question, what must I do to be saved? He appears in the question to recognize that something is lacking in his life, which is also the right starting place. And of course, he comes and kneels before Jesus, showing reverence and respect for Jesus. So as we, as we start down your checklist, if you will, it's check, check, check. He's, he's looking good so far. And given what appears to be a very sincere question, Jesus' response must have been a little bit startling. He immediately challenges the young man's compliment, asking, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. I might imagine the young man thinking, well, boy, I'm sorry, I was just trying to be respectful here, and and Jesus is challenging my comment. But, But Jesus was not being harsh. You see, he was picking up on the young man's own words in order to begin to peel back the assumptions that this man had made. Rarely, you see, if ever, did a Jewish person call another man, even a rabbi, good. 
That was a character quality of God. And to call a man good was considered uh, dangerously close to identifying him with the character of God. And so Jesus pauses and says, so why did you call me good? It's interesting, in the, in the Greek, Jesus places a heavy emphasis on me. Literally, this reads, why me do you call good? See, as, as he's done again and again, Jesus is trying to pull the man's focus from laws and, and requirements unto himself. He says, you call me good, but only God is good. Is that the connection you're meaning to make here? See, what you really need is to consider me and who I am and, and how you will respond to me. Is that what you mean by this question and by calling me good? This is what Jesus is trying to get turning in, in the man's mind. But as, as those wheels are turning, Jesus proceeds to list a number of the commandments, the requirements of the law. And you'll recognize largely the second half of the Ten Commandments here. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. And you can maybe hear a little bit of the hopefulness in the man's voice when he responds, well, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. That answer would probably fit a number of people today. R.C. Sproul recalls teaching an evangelism class to a number of people who were involved in church. These were all churchgoers. And he asked the group the question, if you were to die tonight and stand before God and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? Of course, this was part of the training, but he asks the people there how they would respond. And R.C. Sproul says that 80% of them answered the question based on what they had done. I've tried to live a good life. I go to church. I call myself a Christian. I've taught Sunday school. I've served as a deacon or an elder. I've tithed to the church. I've never murdered, stolen, or committed adultery. And these were the answers. And yet, according to Jesus and to Scripture... If that is our answer, then we should expect God to respond by saying, I'm very sorry, but those things do not qualify you to enter my kingdom. Because the things we do do cannot overcome the sin we also do to make us qualified to inherit eternal life. Now, Sproul writes that he was so alarmed by these responses one night that he went straight home and pulled his five-year-old son aside and said, Son, if you were to die tonight and stand before God and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And his son looked at him and said, well, I would say, because I'm dead now. And (laughs) Sproul realized he had a little bit of work uh, to do in discipling his, his son there. But we need to ask ourselves how we'd answer that question. And like many who give these answers, I believe this rich young ruler was not lying. He was was not being a hypocrite. I think he was a sincere young man who, according to the best of his understanding, would say, look, I I have not killed anyone. I have not committed adultery. I have not stolen. I I have kept these commandments to the best of my understanding. But how easy it is for us to be deceived to deceive ourselves, to feel like everything is going well and is all in, is in order when we are blind to the worldly allegiances that we have in our heart and the people and the things that have a hold on us. And as we think about this, this answer, I want you to look at Jesus' response in verse 21 and just imagine this for a second. Jesus looked at him intently, 
Many translations say the word for to look at the man here is an intensified word, which means to examine him or to scrutinize him. In other words, Jesus looked straight through this man. Jesus looked at him with the gaze of God, with the gaze of the Son of God that will turn itself on us on Judgment Day. So what is exposed in us when we stand before the gaze of God? What would that gaze reveal about our status between a perfect, holy king? That's the gaze that Jesus turns on this man here. And yet, do you notice in verse 21 that this gaze did not lead Jesus to spurn this man or reject him? But Mark tells us that when Jesus looked intently at him, he loved him. That is such an important comment that Mark gives us here. Because there is no indication in all of Scripture that this young man ever turned to Christ. What we know is that he rejected Christ, rejected his offer, and went away sad. And so I believe that this verse speaks to the compassion that God has for human beings created in his image. It is not at all at odds with Scripture's teaching that God sovereignly predestines some to salvation and and not others. It is precisely what God tells us about himself and his character. We see it here. We see it in Christ who weeps over Jerusalem, who has rejected him. We see it in the words of God in Ezekiel when when the Lord says that he takes no delight in the death of the wicked. Yes, God hates sin and wickedness. Yes, he executes justice according to his character. Yes, he is sovereign but he also looks with a common grace, love, and compassion on those who are lost. And so it is here. And having loved this man, Jesus does what a loving Savior would do. He pierces straight to his heart and puts his finger on the essence of the problem. You see, this young man may have kept the second half of the Ten Commandments, but he's completely forgotten the first commandment, to have no other gods before me. The first great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And Jesus, knowing exactly what has a hold on this rich young man's heart, says to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Now, as we think about Jesus' words here, we have to offer some clarifying comments. We should note, of course, that Jesus was not instituting a universal rule that anyone who would have salvation must sell all that they have. After all, we know of Zacchaeus, who was another rich man in the Gospels, and Zacchaeus gave away half of what he had, demonstrating his repentance by giving fourfold to those who had defrauded. And and they sort of imagine a conversation between Zacchaeus and the rich man, and and the rich man might look at Jesus and say, well, wait a second, Jesus, can I have the 50% off deal that he got? (laughs) See, the, the, the standard is not a universal one that you must give away everything you have. After all, Jesus knows that the rich ruler here can't be given a specific percentage or it will just be another item on the checklist for him to complete. Nor, of course, is it giving his wealth to the poor in itself that saves him. If so, Chuck Feeney would be in for giving away $8 billion regardless of his heart. That's not the case at all. No, the crux of Jesus' comment is the last words, come, follow me. So that's the common demand that Jesus makes on his people. 
And his people have to be willing to give up whatever Jesus might call them to give up. For some of Jesus' disciples, that meant leaving their nets by the seashore. For some of Jesus' disciples, that meant leaving their father in the boat. For some of Jesus' disciples, it meant abandoning their tax booth. For some, it means giving away their wealth. But it's not about what we're willing to give up. It's about a complete abandonment of all we are and have to Christ, such that we would give up whatever he calls us to give up, whenever he calls us to give it up for his sake. The key is, do I belong, body and soul, life and possessions to Jesus? Am I his for him to do whatever he wants to with, whenever he wants, wherever he might call me or lead me? That is the way into the kingdom of God. Come, follow me wherever I lead. And where I lead will put my heart on the thing other than me that has a hold on your life. Well, Jesus' call hits a mark, for we read, Disheartened by this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And so in the end, as far as we know, this man did not inherit eternal life. But when the ruler leaves, Jesus wants to press the point home with his disciples. So let's move on now and look at verses 23 to 31. Jesus says to his disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, he says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I love Jesus' imagery. This is one of my favorite comparisons and analogies that he draws here. A brief comment here. Um, It was popular for a time for people to argue that a needle was not actually a sewing needle, but a gate in Jerusalem that was very small and that a camel would have to kneel and have everything taken off of him in order to to enter. But the problem is there's actually no historical evidence for a gate called the needle until almost a thousand years after Jesus' time. And to interpret it this way would actually strip it of its power because Jesus is not saying that it's difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's saying it's impossible And so he's using an analogy of the largest animal, animal, a camel, going through the smallest hole, the eye of a needle, to say that a rich man cannot do what it takes to get into the kingdom of God. Now, before we think, yeah, Elon Musk, you know, watch out out there, let's remember that by the standards of Jesus' day, I think I am safe in saying that every single one of us in this room is wealthy by the standards Jesus would have been referring to. You and I live in a country that is absolutely awash in money and resources and possessions. And the temptation for us to rely on our resources or to love the stuff that we can gain is so great. I think it's probably safe to assume that living in America as we do, you and I are not even fully aware of the ways and the extent to which we rely on our resources and find comfort and security and pleasure in our resources or grumble at not having more of our resources. Of course, Jesus is not saying that wealth in and of itself was sinful. There are plenty of wealthy followers of Christ in Scripture. It's up to the Lord to give to whom he will what he will, and he may well entrust wealth to you. But what I don't want us to do is, is, is let that fact get us off the hook. The temptation of wealth seeps in so easily, and we need to be willing to examine our hearts. Are we aware of how difficult it is to fully trust God and to follow Christ and to loosen our grip on the world when we are surrounded by wealth? This is Jesus' point here. 
And we read that the disciples are first amazed and then exceedingly astonished at Jesus' words. The fact is that in Judaism, wealth was assumed to be a sign of God's blessing. And so you can imagine what's going through their mind. Well, wait a second. If the people who have the sign of God's blessing cannot inherit eternal life, well, then how can any person be saved? And in verse 27, Jesus says, good thinking. Because with man, it is actually completely impossible for anyone to be saved. No one is wealthy enough to attain the kingdom of heaven. But, says Jesus, all things are possible with God. So we are not without hope. Would you think for just a second about verse 27 here, that with God, all, even the impossible is possible? You know, I think we typically hear that salvation is free. All you have to do is believe in Jesus and you can be saved. And that is true. But the problem is when we hear that often enough, if we aren't careful, this can make it seem like being saved from sin is really no big deal. It's such a small and simple thing. But Jesus says that salvation is so difficult, it is so monumental, it is as unfathomable as camels jumping through the eyes of needles. And we should not forget for one second that your way and my way into the presence of a holy God is completely unattainable on our own. It is on the scale of miracles and mountains being moved into the sea. It is more impossible for us than we would dare imagine. And yet it is that which God accomplished by sending his son to the cross, that his blood might be shed for us to secure our redemption and to apply it to our hearts by the power of his spirit so that something so impossible might be received by faith alone. To think that something so monumental might be received so freely through faith alone reminds us again of the glorious, glorious salvation that God has offered us. The disciples are a bit shaken, I think. They realize they are reevaluating some of their assumptions and asking new questions. And not surprisingly, after the moment of silence, it's Peter who speaks up. And he says, see, Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. Now, as I read this throughout the week, I'm not 100% sure what Peter's tone is here. It might have been one of arrogance. Well, see, Jesus, what we've done, we've given up everything and followed you. So what are we going to get out of this deal? Might have been that might have also been a question of concern. Well, Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. Where do we stand? I'm not sure where his question is going, but I do know Jesus' answer. And it's extravagant in its beauty. See it there in verse 29. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now and this time and in the age to come, eternal life. And there we are, right back to where we started. Because this is done for my sake, for Jesus' sake, because he has called us. And so we're right back to the answer, how do we get into the kingdom of God? Not by what we have or what we have done, but only by who we follow. By giving up this world and our will for his sake to follow him. And it's when we give that up for Christ's sake that the reward of a hundredfold return now and eternal life is ours in Christ Jesus. Well, that's what Jesus tells us. Before we end, would you just consider two questions with me? Two questions for us to ask ourselves. First is this. Would we ask ourselves, on what do we base 
our assurance of salvation? What are we looking to to find assurance of our salvation? Perhaps some of us know our need of salvation. Our sin is so bold, it is so pervasive. Our need to cling to Christ alone and nothing we have done is as obvious as the hand in front of our face. But what about the good kids among us? You know the, those that I'm talking about. Those of you students, you, you, your teachers uh, love you. You are cheerful and, and generally obey your parents. You don't lie or cheat. You're, you're trusted by your coaches. Or, or maybe you adults, you've been in church your whole life. You've, you've uh, tithed faithfully. You've served as an, as an usher. And looking at those factors, you might think, well, I think I'm in pretty good shape. And it may be that you're looking at your life and seeing the fruit of the Spirit's work. And if so, it is right to give thanks to the Lord for his work that he's done in you. But you might also be slipping into the place of the rich young ruler and looking for your assurance to the things that you have done. But the rich young ruler sensed that something was lacking and Jesus agreed. In fact, he said it's the most important thing that's lacking. It's obedience to the first commandment to have no other gods before me. That's lacking. It's forgetting that even the good kids on the block have idols and temptations that grab our heart and keep us from being the Lord's. And so for the commandment keepers among us, do you know your need? Do you know that you must abandon yourself to receive and rest on Christ alone for salvation as he's offered to you in the gospel? Is that your assurance of salvation in life and in death? That's the first question we need to ask ourselves this morning. Then the second question is this. Would you consider with me the promise that Jesus makes in verses 30 and 31? Look at verses 30 and 31 with me. Jesus declares that those who do leave house or family or land for Christ's sake will receive 100-fold now in this time as well as eternal life in the age to come. Now Jesus' words here are interesting. I want you to, to think about them for a second because I think it's fair to say that most of Scripture focuses on the death that we die in this life in order to attain salvation in the next life. And that, of course, is the crux of our hope. But do you notice here that Jesus does not say, if you come to, to faith in me, you need to give everything up and live a miserable life with nothing good now, but then you'll have salvation in the next life. He doesn't say that. He says that anyone who gives up houses and family and lands for his sake in the gospel will receive a 100-fold return on their investment now in this time as well as eternal life in the next age. What does Jesus mean? Well, consider what you receive when you place your faith in Christ alone. You receive the very Spirit of God coming to dwell in you. The Spirit who is the Comforter. The Spirit who will guide you into truth. The Spirit who is called the Spirit of peace and of joy. Who is the very presence of God coming to you. If you put your faith in Christ, you receive that Spirit now. And not only are you joined to Christ Himself, but if you come to Christ, you are joined to the family of Christ, to the body of Christ. And you receive a multitude of fathers and mothers in the faith and brothers and sisters in the Lord. And you are, you are welcomed into houses of the Lord and by the hospitality of his people who encourage you and sustain you and pray for you and admonish you and help you and hold you up. You know now the joy of living for and honoring your Savior. And so it is that Paul in, in Philippians chapter 3 says, As I, I counted everything I had as rubbish compared to what? 
the surpassing excellence of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. That's now. As we have the Spirit of God and know Christ. And is that not worth more than all the riches of this world? Of course, Jesus is honest. I I love his statement, which still sounds jarring every time you read it. We will receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands and persecutions. And we think, wait a second, Jesus, you had me at the the fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and lands and houses, but persecutions? That's part of what's involved in following you? And Jesus says, yes. Yes. If we give up everything to follow Christ, we will have persecutions. But what are those persecutions compared to the gain we have in Christ? Many of you probably know the name of David Livingston, a missionary to Africa. He spent much of his time exploring Africa, but he wasn't there as an explorer. He was there to know the continent in order to open inroads for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And toward the end of his life, after suffering hardships sacrifices, being mauled by a lion, and other things, he gave a talk at Cambridge University. And in that talk, Livingston said this, he said, people talk of the sacrifices I have made throughout my life for this mission. But is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in the consciousness of doing good, of peace of mind, and a bright hope of the glorious destiny hereafter? Away with such a word and such a view, Away with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice at all. Say rather, it is a privilege. And that's the attitude. Yes, persecutions. Yes, selling all we have in this life. But that's no sacrifice when it comes with a hundredfold of the joys of Christ and the presence of his spirit now and eternal life forever with him to come. That's what Christ calls us to. I think of the words of Hebrews eleven twenty six where it says of Moses, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to his reward. Could the same be said of us this morning, that we're willing to give up all to follow Christ wherever he leads, because all the treasures of this world are nothing compared to the reward of Christ, now and for all eternity to come. Let's pray. Father, Oh, I pray that this would be true of our hearts. Oh, Father, in our time, in our country, where we are especially, Father, warn our hearts of the lure of wealth and riches that would turn us from our complete dependence upon you. Father, would we use everything we have as a gift from you, as you would have us for your glory, ready to give up anything that you call us to for your sake and for the gospel's. And Father, as we do so, would we have the attitude here of Livingston and the attitude of Moses that such is no sacrifice, but a privilege as we receive the Spirit of God and the blessing of Jesus Christ and all eternity to look forward to in his presence. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.